Today I'm going to read chapter 8 of My Vanish World by Nell Adams, who, as you know, is a Shan princess. Chapter 8 is about her school days. From an early age, I knew that, like my sisters, Agnes and Audrey, and my aunts before them, I would be sent to St Agnes's convent in Kalau. This convent was considered to be the best boarding school for girls in the Shan states. The discipline enforced and the academic standard were unquestionable. I was eager to learn and was looking forward to this aspect of school life, but I could not imagine or even dare think how I would adapt to being away from home and my parents for two thirds of the year. I was a timid child, strongly attached to my parents, and I tended to cling to home, while Audrey and Jean were always ready for an adventure. They were the ones who would accompany grandfather on his jungle expedition or, or go ahead to the festival while I waited to travel with my parents. Ever sensitive to the different characters and needs of their children, my parents had not insisted that I should start school when I was five. I was allowed to wait until seven when, with five years old Jean, I was to accompany Audrey for the new term in May 1938. Mother was kept busy getting our school clothes together. The provision of these necessities were expensive enough but there were also the school fees. Agnes, being the firstborn, had her school fees paid by grandfather, but that left three sets of fees for father to find. This was a tremendous drain. When Agnes married, grandfather's financial assistance ceased. The journey to Kalau was 60 miles, and we were packed off to bed early the night before in preparation. It was two unhappy girls, however, who said goodnight to our parents. In spite of the promise that they'd both travel with us and their attempt to inject us with enthusiasm and excitement, we would not be consoled. Jean and I cried ourselves to sleep. Our route took us west from Lorsak in the opposite direction to Tangji through Kuangpao village, where on future journeys, we'd pick oranges to take to school. On leaving Kang Po, we came to a small town, Pangtara, renowned for its limestone caves, which contained thousands of Buddha images built over a long period. There was a picturesque lake where families came for picnics and to swim. The water looked very clear and calm, but it could be quite treacherous. The Sorba of Pangtara the father of a friend, Julie, was drowned in this lake while swimming. The scenery from Pangtara to Kalau was quite special. And at Puila, another small town, paddy and potato fields stretched for miles along the foot of the mountain ranges. Unlike in other parts of the Shan state, where rice was grown in swamps of wetland, in Puila, rice was cultivated on dry land. Not far from here, we arrived in Angban, the rail terminus and depot. Kalau was a hill station and holiday resort, 4,300 feet above sea level. When we entered Kalau, the air was cool and fresh, 
As the wind blew, we caught the strong smell of pine needles. The impact was amazing. There were pine trees all around us, interspersed here and there by, by cherry and crab apple blossoms. The school was on the outskirts, and as the car climbed uphill, passing Kingswood School, which was run by Church of England missionaries, Audrey pointed out to Jean and me that we had arrived at St Agnes's convent. I can recall with clarity how my heart started to beat with fear, faster and faster, until I thought it would leap out of my chest as we entered the school ground through an iron gate. It was a double-storey brick building. I was astounded by the size of it, but it was of no grandeur or magnificence. Through the front entrance, we entered the parlour, a visiting room for parents and other guests, where we were informed that Mother Superior would be free in a few minutes. In the meantime, could Audrey be kind enough to show us around the school buildings? Thus, it was a family crocodile following Audrey that I had the first glimpse of what was to become very familiar, my home for eight months of the year for the following nine or 10 years. On the ground floor of this main building were Mother Superior's office, a large library, the stationary room, the teacher's dining room, and at one side, a large play area for the boys. Directly above the play area were the boys' dormitory, well chaperoned by the teachers and nuns whose bedrooms adjoined theirs. This was an area with which we would not be encouraged to become too familiar. Our dormitories were as far away as possible on the first floor of one of the annexes. The annexes were approached by a long passageway linking the parlour to the outside. Climbing a few steps, we saw a chapel on the left and on our right, the annexes, which housed the girls' dormitories. They also contained washrooms, recreation area, and the senior girls' classrooms and a long, narrow assembly hall. It was to this hall that we would be called twice daily to say our prayers and rosaries. The classrooms for the juniors were in the third annex on a single-storey building near the chapel. On our return to the parlour, my spirits were lifted at the sight of young boys playing football. They looked like ordinary boys having a jolly good time. This familiar sight amidst so much strangeness made me think happiness might after all be our option. The sense of relief was dispelled, however, by the sudden appearance of Mother Superior and Sister Seraphine, the school dragon, I was later to learn. This was my first experience of nuns, and as they bore down on us in their swishing clothes and bonnets, they looked large and frightening. They shook hands with mother and father and kissed and hugged Audrey before turning their attention to us. Reluctant to be enveloped in their hugs, I retreated behind father where I remained, gripping his hand for security. While our parents had been chatting with the nuns, the caretaker, or Jurawan, had transported our luggage to the dormitories. There was nothing to wait for now, and our parents prepared to leave. Jean was very brave. She did not cry. Not so I. Not only cried, but howled and clung to my father. 
Sister Seraphine pulled me free and took us to the dormitory, where the assistant nurse tried to distract us by keeping us busy. She taught us how to make our beds, which had to be in line with the others, with mosquito nets drawn and neatly tucked under the mattress, and then tied with a blue band, which also had to be on the level with the others. She showed us where everything was kept, and then our clothes were neatly put away in named cupboards, and the toiletries tidied away in our lockers, opposite the long line of wash basins with several cold water taps. Audrey, as a senior, was in a different dormitory, but at 6.30pm, she came to find us to take us to join the row of girls lined up two by two along the porch leading to the refectory. When the sister in charge admitted us, the old girls went straight to their places, while we new girls had to wait until we were given our own seats. Grace was said as we stood at the beginning of the meal and, at, and again at the end. We were not allowed to speak until we were seated and the sister in charge had said, good appetite, girls. Our reply, thank you, sister, was the signal for chatter to begin. How it was restrained chatter. St Agnes' pupils were expected to be seen and only quietly heard. We had been encouraged as a family to take pleasure in tasty, wholesome food with plenty of fresh green vegetables and other ingredients flavoured with herbs. Lightly with spices was no preparation for convent cuisine. The first meal was a disaster. I can still recall the taste of the rubbery scrambled egg on cold toast, the solid rice, dal, yellow split peas, and beef curry, over-flavoured with strong spices. It would have been difficult for even a happy child to enjoy this food, and I felt desolate. I ate slowly and sparingly. My hope that the dessert might save the day was dashed by the arrival of peaches, too heavily flavoured with cloves. I went to bed hungry that night and many nights afterwards. Gradually, we settled into school life. Although I cannot say I ever enjoyed convent food, I came to accept that if I cannot exist on food parcels from home, I would have to eat it, if only to survive to the next school holiday. There were some other aspects of school routine which were even more difficult to accept at first. We were forbidden to speak Shan or any other language other than English. In the Shan state at that time, English was the official language used in government offices, most schools, colleges, universities. There were three levels of kindergarten, A, B and C. Jean was put in C, whereas I, because I knew the alphabets and could spell a few words, was put in B. I enjoyed the lessons and quickly learnt to read, write and spell. I also enjoyed maths and mental arithmetic so much that I always scored high marks. Progression from one grade to a higher was not automatic and depended on age, as it is in most English schools. Everyone had to pass the end of year exam. Anyone failing to do so would have to complete a further year at their current grade. A short time, perhaps two months after my arrival, I was informed that I had made such good progress that I was to leapfrog over kindergarten A into first standard. 
My pride and pleasure in this was only slightly diminished by the fact that the teacher of the first standard was the school dragon, Sister Seraphine. In the event I discovered, it was easy as far as lessons were concerned to keep Sister Seraphine satisfied. She liked children who worked hard and I enjoyed working hard. In spite of my success in her lessons, our relationship was not without its problems. She was a strict disciplinarian and felt that children in the first standard were old enough to attend lessons without being allowed trips to the toilets. One day I risked her wrath by asking to be excused. My obvious anxiety failed to move her and I returned to my seat in ever increasing discomfort. Crossing my legs, I tried to concentrate on the lesson, but my bladder gave way to the natural function. The sound of water in this quietness of the classroom attracted not only Sister Seraphine's attention, the whole class turned to stare at the puddle beneath my desk. I remember trembling as Sister Seraphine approached, but to my amazement, she was not angry. Go upstairs and change your clothes, was all she said. Perhaps she had realised that I was not a child to make idle excuses to leave the classroom and that her response was unreasonable. In addition to Italian nuns, we had lay teachers. In the second standard, Miss de Roche, a sympathetic and understanding Anglo-Indian lady, took me for lessons and acted as my form teacher. I remember learning from her King Alfred who burnt the cake and King Canute, but I, was, but I only stayed a term with her before being promoted to third standard where I met Miss Sherman. She was young and lively, straight out of college, bringing with her many new and modern ideas, which she was eager to try out on us. She instilled excitement and enthusiasm, not only in the classroom, but in many other areas of school life, which I was beginning to enjoy. She took the junior girls for PE and started the school's first blue blurred group, Brownies, which met every Tuesday after school. The first thing bluebirds had to do was learn the mottos and how to live up to them. Then they developed competitiveness and team spirit. We enjoyed many walks along the pine forest and bamboo groves, at the same time learning about nature and trying to remember what we saw. When we returned to school, there was a competition to see which team was able to remember and list most items. The team score was recorded and the results were announced once a month. Although we were encouraged to compete, it was not a savage or unfriendly competition. Guided by Miss Sherman, we learned to work well as a team and to enjoy harmonious inter-team relationships. There was little harmony around Sister Seraphine. She was forever in conflict with one girl or the other, and we would frequently hear her shouting, Sandapash, Sandapash, goodness gracious me, in Italian. She rushed about the school as if she alone was responsible for enforcing the school's discipline and keeping the place clean and tidy. None of the nuns was quite as confrontational as Sister Seraphine, but most of them rushed around like overgrown birds. There was one nun, however, who did create an air of calmness and serenity. Sister Erminia 
the school's headmistress, was my favourite. I liked and respected her. She took the fifth standard upwards for maths, and during the exam period, she tested the lower classes for mental arithmetic. Her greatest asset was her ability to inspire pupils to use the well-stocked library. She was always keen to give advice on what books to read, books such as Oliver Twist, What Katie Did, Little Women, and Robinson Crusoe were among her favourites. When she was on the Friday Rota, responsible for the girls from tea to dinner time, we would gather round her story time. Often she chose romantic novels, but whatever she read, she had the gift of making every story interesting and totally engrossed, we would listen to every word. She was not a beautiful woman. Her face with its hair on the upper lip and chin were rather masculine in appearance, but she was tall and stately in her movements. I, being a quiet child, appreciated her gentleness and her softly spoken voice. I remember her with affection as a lady and as a great scholar. In Kalor, although the climate was pleasant the whole year round, it was colder than in Lawsar. At home, we did not have to get up so early, but at school we had to get up at 6am on weekdays and 7am on Sundays. Every morning, Sister Antonietta, who was in charge of our dormitory, clapped her hands to wake us up, followed by the words, Benedictamus Domino. And if we were awake, we sleepily replied, Deo gratis. On weekdays, the Catholic girls had to get up half an hour earlier than the rest of us to attend Mass in the chapel. But on Sundays, both in the mornings and evenings, all the juniors, including the non-Catholics, had to attend Mass at the Christ the King Church across the road from the school. The church, run by Father Baldrini, an Italian priest, served the school, whose pupils were seated on the left and the public sat on the right of the centre aisle. We had to put on our special Sunday white dresses with navy blue hat or beret and our black leather shoes. Tea followed afternoon mass, after which the schoolboys and girls together went up for the weekly walk. Lined up two by two, the smallest in the lead and the tall ones bringing up the rear, we would set off, whatever the weather, accompanied by one or two nuns. If memory serves right, the walk took one hour and a half. Invigorated by the walk, this tribe of hungry children were ready to eat heartily, even convent food, and descended on the dining room as noisily as our controlled environment allowed. The Shan pupils, already familiar with strict discipline at home, generally found the strict discipline and lack of freedom in the convent less irksome. We were, however, still affected by the injustices in the system. Although my parents had been strict, they had always been fair and consistent in their judgment. It was a shock to encounter adults who were moody and acted according to their whims, as did some of the nuns. This often resulted in their being irrational in their judgment and unfair in the punishment they gave out. There is one incident which remained clear in my memory. We were at private studies and I was totally absorbed in my homework when Sister Seraphine called my friend Betty 
and me to her desk. Will you take Betty and coach her in subjects she finds difficult? I agreed and returned to the desk where Betty came and sat beside me. I showed her how to work out some sums and left her to try the rest for herself while I got on with my homework. Sister Seraphine, who was walking around the classroom, stopped at my desk and shouted, stand up and hit me on the nape of my head before sending me to the corner. She believed that I disobeyed her and I was not helping Betty. She had not asked for any explanations and I took the punishment I did not deserve without daring to utter a word. Other times, however, she could be sympathetic and listen to reasons. One morning before lessons, I was seated at my desk when a girl called Ada Thin asked to look at my Shirley Temple cards. Collecting these cards, which were enclosed in packets of chewing gum, was the current craze at the convent at that time. Almost everyone had a set and there was great competition. It was not unusual for friends to spend time poring over and comparing collections, but Ada Thin was not a particular friend and had not hitherto shown any interest in my collection. I showed her my collection, where to my amazement, she discovered two cards with Ada Thin written on them. As a day pupil, Ada Thin would have had access to the classroom to wait for lessons to begin. She would also have had time while we boarders were having breakfast to find the cards in my desk. I was young and innocent, but there was something in the expression on her face which made me think she was not surprised by the discovery. Although I would not at this stage imagine why, I became suspicious that Ada put the cards there. In great distress, I ran out of the room to find Audrey, who in spite of my reluctance, insisted on taking me to Sister Seraphine. On this occasion, Sister Seraphine was calm and sympathetic. She reassured me that there was nothing to worry about and she would investigate. I discovered later that Ada had confessed that she had planted the cards. She had wanted to incriminate me because she was jealous of my success in the classroom. One of the foundations of the school's discipline was routine. Life in the convent was often boring in its predictability. With strict limits on our freedom, the weekends, for example, seemed interminable as we played cards and games on end. Saturdays were worse than Sundays, for we were not able to enjoy the pleasure of being out of doors. This was the day upon which we were forced to choose between the weekly dose of castor oil or Epsom salts. Choosing the latter as the lesser of two evils, I would close my eyes and gulp down the liquid but the rest of the day tended to be limited by the need for simple and easy access to the toilet. There was no limit on weekend visits, which our families were allowed, and my parents came as often as they could to take us to the shop to eat delicious restaurant food or have takeaway food at the bungalow, the government rest house where they stayed. However, it was a long journey from our home to this, and father's state duties kept them away often and left us to fall back on the limited resources for fun at the convent. It was wonderful news, therefore, when in my second year, Daphne, my mother's younger sister, decided to take a long vacation in Kalau and rented a house about 45 minutes walk from the convent. Her mother, 
our maternal grandmother, also came to stay with her. The combination of grandma's delicious cooking and Aunt Daphne's willingness to play games and our freedom to wander in the garden and nearby woods made the house our haven on many Saturdays and even occasions for the whole weekend. One Sunday, Audrey, Jean and I reluctantly accepted Grandma's suggestion that we should return early to avoid what was obviously an approaching storm and we quickly packed our books and clothes. Even as we set out, light rain was falling and by the time we were halfway, in spite of our intermittent attempts to shelter, we were soaked and the storm was directly overhead. The noise of the thunder and the bright flashes of lightning were dramatic and Jean, who even in the safety of the house, was terrified of thunder and began to cry. I did not cry. I was feeling not so much frightened as bereft. As I stood under a tree, which seemed to be contributing to our wetness rather than sheltering us, I felt, not for the first time in my childhood, the need for the comforting protection of a caring adult. Audrey was obviously sensitive to this and feeling the responsibility of an older child for her younger sisters, put aside her own anxiety and declared we should not worry. We would return as quickly as we could to Aunt Daphne's house. Jean and I entirely endorsed her decision, arriving cold and soaked and feeling very sorry for ourselves. One would obviously have a more receptive audience in Grandma and Aunt Daphne's house. And as we dried, fed, watered and comforted in front of a blazing fire for a few hours until our clothes were perfectly dry, we again made our way back to school and luckily arrived in time for dinner. In spite of the many objections to the convent, we did nevertheless develop a sense of loyalty and courage, the rivalry between us and the nearby mixed school, Kingswood. There were few occasions when we were able to voice this rivalry more loudly than during the football matches between Kingswood and the Shan Chief School in Tangji. Uncle Kyo Mung and Uncle Yuet Mun were students at Shan Chief School and when their team played Kingswood, they were allowed to take us to watch the match. This was exciting because we were related to or knew most of the players from the Shan Chiefs team. And this, plus the exciting rivalry, meant that when the game was at its peak, we would chant, Shan Chiefs, Shan Chiefs. If Shan Chiefs beat Kingswood, our last and loudest words would be, hip hip hooray for the Shan Chiefs. This really made our day. Although St Agnes was primarily a girls' school, boys were accepted from the age of five to 12. And when I was in the third year in 1941, my brother Desmond joined us. This must have been the most difficult separation for mother. She loved us all, but I think Desmond was special to her. Indeed, he was a sweet and lovable boy. But at five years of age, boisterous, mischievous, never still, is beginning to be a handful for mother. Nevertheless, when she left him for the first time, her eyes misted with tears as she hugged and kissed him goodbye. During our time at school, although we were Buddhists, we were forced to attend the Catholic Mass and learn the Catechism and the Bible 
Some families were very unhappy about this and raised objections, but without success. It was convent policy. If you intend the convent, you had to accept it. My parents didn't feel so strongly about it. Confident that Buddhas were such an intrinsic part of our family life, they believed we were protected from the influence of other religions. In our case, and most others, this proved to be true. Quite surprisingly, it was when the convents were forced to take a more liberal attitude that their influence seemed to increase. After the war, one of my uncles, Sao Sai Mo, who was at that time the education officer of the Shan State, introduced a regulation that no pupils should be forced to learn about other religions or attend a place of worship other than his or her own. This, in fact, encouraged some pupils to investigate other religions and a few were even converted to Catholicism. With the approach of a holiday, there's always a buildup of excitement. The term long and seemingly endless would we know be well compensated for the joy of the holiday. We were mentally cross off the days to the one when no day pupils would arrive, the classroom chairs would be placed on the desks and the boarders would assemble with their luggage on the ground floor to wait the arrival of their parents. The school looked so empty then that I felt a fleeting moment of sadness. I would miss my friends, Julie, who had been my friend from the first day at school, and Peggy, who was my best friend. I consoled myself with the thought that I would be seeing them after the holidays, and in the meantime, we could write to each other. And indeed, we did faithfully correspond with each other throughout the holidays. One by one, the boarders would leave until it was our turn. Father came to fetch us and happily we would journey home. Mother would welcome each of us with a smile, a big hug and a kiss. We would bathe quickly and change into something comfortable. As we stepped into the dining room, we would smell herbs, coriander, lemongrass and mint, the combined flavour of which made home cooking so wonderful. It was indescribable what it was like to be home with all the family together, full of news, joy and laughter and eating hot, steamy, delicious food after all those school dinners. Boarding school certainly made one more appreciative of home. That's the end of the chapter. <laughs>